Good morning, College Park. I'm going to read from Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience hears, bears, wit, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you, before we jump into this text, asking you to give us understanding and discernment as we study these three chapters now. They are challenging texts, and we need your help to understand them and to apply them. So give us grace today. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds. Help us to see things today we wouldn't see. And help me to, help me to say just what you want to be said about this glorious passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of the book of Romans is righteousness. God's righteousness, our unrighteousness, And the way in which God gives righteousness to those who don't have it as they put their faith and trust in Jesus. Since January of last year, we've been making our way through this glorious book and we have seen the revealing of righteousness in chapters 1 through 3, the gift of righteousness in the second half of chapter 3 into chapter 4, the hope of righteousness in chapter 5 6 and 7, and the promise of righteousness in Romans chapter 8. And today we begin a nine-week journey examining three chapters in Romans, 9, 10, and 11, under the banner of the mystery of righteousness. And I've chosen the word mystery intentionally because I believe that these three chapters present some, if not the, most challenging and yet awe-inspiring passages in the entire Bible. Some sections are hard to understand, others are glorious, and Romans 9-11 through 11 is both. What happens in these three chapters is, in one moment, you'll read texts that will blow your mind, and in another, you'll read a text that will boggle your mind. You'll find yourself reading God's Word and going, What? 
And then a word in the text later, you find yourself going, wow. And that is a beautiful and yet also traumatic experience. The section of scripture has the potential to change or alter or adjust the way in which you see yourself, the world, and especially the way in which you see God. So these chapters are a varsity chapter, varsity chapters, and it's a privilege to be able to try and walk you through them. Before we jump into this text, specifically chapter 9 today, I want to give you some pastoral admonitions about how to think as we walk through the next number of weeks together. I want to give you some practical counsel on what should be your orientation as you come to these three chapters. First, I want you as we walk through these three chapters to remember that the God of Romans 8 is also the God of Romans 9. I want you to be careful that you don't overly locate your view of God in one chapter of the Bible. And I also want you to remember that when we walk through Romans 9 and we run into some things that are a bit jarring, and we see angles of who and what God is that at times seem to be dissonant from Romans chapter 8, to remember that the God of Romans 8 is also the God of Romans 9. We're talking about the same beautiful, grace-giving God. Resist the tendency to only view God through one chapter or your favorite chapter. Secondly, I want you to be willing to allow the Bible to shape and then maybe reshape your vision of God. You see, there are many things that inform our understanding of who God is. We all come with presuppositions and life experiences, and we have an idea of what God is like. And what I want to encourage you to do, at least try to do, is to allow the Bible to shape that vision or to reshape that vision. Do your best to submit to the authority of the Bible versus trying to make the Bible submit to your authority. Third, some of the texts that we're going to deal with are hard, and they're going to create tension. And I want you to embrace the tension of hard texts. Passages like these create dissonance as New categories are formed in our minds, and old categories are dismantled. There are things you may run into in these three chapters, and you're like, I've never thought of that, or I've never heard of that, or I don't know how to even get my head around that. And if that's what you feel and that's what you sense, you're probably understanding Romans 9 to 11 pretty well. If you leave here after Sunday after Sunday, and your thought is, I got this, I got this, I got this, you don't got this. this. This this chapter is significant. These three chapters are significant, and it can be a painful process as tension begins to emerge. Instead of being dismayed by it, I want you to embrace it. And I want you to use it as your servant to humble you and to motivate a new pursuit of God in your life. Third, or fourth, rather, I want to encourage you to take the long view when it comes to deep and challenging truths in the Bible. Meaning, sanctification, church, is a lifelong journey. And subjects that we are going to address in these chapters are worthy of a lifetime of humble, God-centered, and Scripture-fed pursuit. So I want you to be patient with yourself. You're not going to solve everything in one Sunday. 
want you to be patient with each other as we walk through various questions that we have, because we all come to these passages with background and context and history. And so I just want you to resolve with me that we're going to seek the Lord and we're going to struggle together to understand certain truths. Jonathan Edwards said this about hard texts, I am convinced that there are many things in religion and in the scriptures that are made difficult on purpose to try men and to exercise their faith in scrutiny and to hinder the proud and self-sufficient. So if one of the things that happens as a result of our study together here is that you walk away more humbled, more in awe of who and what God is, I think you will have understood the tone and the tenor of Romans 9 to 11. My prayer is that this text will become one of your most favorite. It already has become one of mine. And so with that, are you ready? Let's go. Three aspects of this text that I want to show you today. The problem, the solution, and the comfort. Very simple. The problem is Israel's unbelief. The solution is a remnant for now, and the comfort is divine election. The problem, the solution, the comfort. We find the problem in verses 1 to 5, and in order to understand all of Romans 9 to 11, you have to understand what Paul is attempting to address here. Simply stated, the problem is this. God's chosen people, Israel, the people over whom God had made promises about their future and their spiritual ascendancy, that they would be a light to the nations, those people rejected their own Messiah, killed him, and are cut off from a relationship with the God who made promises that they would be spiritually vibrant. And so the question is, if God's promises to Israel have not come true, then how in the world can we have any confidence that the promises in Romans 8 will also come true, or that they are even true? Remember Romans 8? I mean, there are beautiful promises. It was loaded with promises. God told us he's for us and not against us. He told us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that, that we're more than conquerors, and that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So Romans 8 was filled with beautiful, sovereign hope. And what Paul does here is anticipates in Romans 9 that as someone's hearing Romans 8, that they would raise their, their hand with a question and say, this is all great stuff, Paul, these promises. But what about Israel? After all, they were the chosen people of God. They killed their own Messiah. The prophets in the Old Testament foretold a great spiritual awakening, and that has not happened. Actually, quite the reverse has taken place. So what do we do about Romans 8? How do we even know it's true? That's the question. It's a huge question. What's more, Paul is concerned pastorally that the church at Rome, made up mostly of Gentiles, would begin looking down their spiritual noses at Israel, thinking that Jewish rejection of the Messiah meant that God was finished with his people. They might think that they, as Gentile Christians, had replaced the people of Israel. So there's enormous pastoral and theological questions. Let me give you an overview of these three chapters. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 29 is the first section. 
And Paul argues that despite Israel's unbelief, the word of God has not failed, but it has been and will be effective because of the sovereign will of God. So he's going to solve the problem of Israel's unbelief eventually by addressing the issue of God's sovereignty. Then secondly, in chapter 9 and verse 30, all the way to chapter 11 and verse 10, Paul talks about the Gentiles and the remnant in Israel are both saved by faith and that those who trusted in their works were hardened. And then in chapter 11 and verse 11 through 1136, Paul argues that the Gentile inclusion will lead eventually to the inclusion of Israel again. So the problem that is first and foremost in Paul's mind here is Israel's unbelief as it relates to the promises of God. And the first five verses introduce this problem by highlighting Paul's sorrow and the Jewishness of God's historical plan. Look at verse 1. The language here is emotionally charged. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. So Paul wants us to know something. That's very significant. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Notice that he's now again appealed to his internal conscience. He's appealed to truth. He's appealed to in Christ. He's appealed to in the Holy Spirit. So he wants us to know that there's something significant that's on the line here. And then he tells us what it is. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What's more, verse verse 3, I wish... I could myself, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's using a, a, a Old Testament model of Moses, like in Exodus 32, where Moses appeals to God to blot his name out of the book of life in order that Israel might be saved. And what Paul is doing is essentially the same thing, saying that he's grieved and he wishes that he himself could be accursed so that Israel could be saved. So there's strong language. What's more, he grounds this problem in ethnic Israel. He says, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. So he's concerned about the national rejection by Israel of their Messiah. And then he lists six spiritual blessings that have been afforded to the Israelites To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So he says, look, all of these things that are in the Old Testament story are all ripe with Jewish context. That they are Israelites and they've been given the beautiful blessings of God. His grief is that God had chosen Israel. He had blessed Israel. He had promised Israel a glorious spiritual future. And it has tragically not happened. But it gets even worse. Look at verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In verse 5, Paul looks back to Israel's history, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, the, the founding fathers, if you will, of the Jewish nation, to whom God made unbelievable promises. To them belong these patriarchs. And then he ends his list here with the climax of tragedy, of all tragedies, namely the rejection of the Messiah. He says, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. You could 
put the word Messiah, is the Messiah, the anointed one. So they rejected their own Messiah. And what's more, who is God overall blessed forever? So to say that Christ is God overall and blessed forever is not only to identify the messianic problem and the rejection of the Messiah, but to identify that they rejected God himself in their rejection of the Messiah. God's chosen people rejected the one who chose them, and they are cut off and are under judgment. So the problem linked to Romans chapter 8 is the unbelief of Israel, despite the promises of God, is a problem because it calls into question whether or not the promises of God can really be trusted. That's the issue. And that's why Paul spends 9, 10, and 11 addressing this issue, and it's a big one. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that the Bible deals with big problems like this. Every once in a while I run into somebody who thinks that Christians can't handle big problems. Like if bad things happen in the world and your God is good, how do you reconcile that? Problems like God made promises to Israel and hasn't taken place. What do you do with that? I don't know if in your world people sometimes treat you, if you're a follower of Jesus, like you're not a a real good thinker, but you need to know the Bible doesn't shy away from hard problems. It's all over the content of the Scripture. There are answers, both philosophical answers and practical answers and exegetical answers to big problems of how we live and where we live in the world. And I'm grateful that Paul doesn't shy away from this, but he answers this question, and he answers it directly. Here's a solution. The solution that he offers in verses 6 to 8 is that there is a remnant You'll notice I say a remnant for now. And I'll explain why I say it that way in a moment. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is a key verse for understanding all three of these chapters. It, it needs to be a verse that you underline in your Bible or maybe just put an asterisk by it or something. It is the key verse for these three chapters. He says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he says two things. First, that God's word hasn't failed. And secondly, that the solution is not all who are descended from Israel really belong to Israel. In other words, if one just looks at the national picture, God's promises would have seemed to have failed. But it's so often the case in biblical history, God has preserved a remnant within Israel, an Israel within Israel. Go to chapter 11 and verse 1. Through six, you'll see a great cross-reference. We'll get here in a couple weeks. But you need to see how Paul picks up this same theme in Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul acknowledges that God has not rejected his people, and he himself is exhibit A. He's an Israelite, and he's a follower of Jesus. And then he goes on and says, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I am alone, left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So do you see what he's doing here in chapter 11 and also back in chapter 9? His solution to the immediate problem of unbelief of Israel is to appeal to the fact that there is still and always has been a remnant of believing Israelites who are the true Israel. So what Paul does here is he takes the discussion about Israel and removes it or separates it out just from the idea of ethnicity and that belonging to the people of God involved belief, not just ethnicity. In other words, the national rejection of Israel does not mean that God's word has failed or that God's promises have been voided, but rather... There are Israelites who did, in fact, believe that there is this Israel within Israel. Now, to to make this even more evident, Paul makes four statements in verses 7 through 9, all of which which say the same thing. He trades metaphors, but essentially he's saying the same thing in four different ways. Let's look at it. Verse 7, he says this, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's the overarching theme. Meaning Abraham had children, and not all of them were the offspring in the way that we're talking about it here. Verse 8, he gets even more specific. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. That's 7b, actually. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This statement clarifies what Abraham had in terms of two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, with Ishmael being, or rather Isaac being, the one to whom the promises of God were confirmed, whereas Ishmael was a biological child, but he wasn't an offspring in this sense. Verse 9. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The implication is this, then, that being born physically into the nation of Israel did not equal being a child of God. And then the conclusion in 8b is, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So here's the conclusion, and why Paul can talk about an Israel within Israel, because the children of promise are the ones who are the true offspring. So you see what he's doing here? He's turning from the focus on national Israel and the nation's rejection of the Messiah to individual Israelites who believed. So the solution to the problem of Israel's unbelief is that offspring never meant every offspring, and that ethnicity was never the ground for faithfulness. See, the challenge was in Israel's history that she began to trust in her ethnicity and her chosen status, and it became the seedbed for her unfaithfulness. And this happens often when people get so accustomed with spiritual things and they hear about spiritual truths, they begin to think that because they've known something or they've heard something or or they're in the right tribe of people that they have embraced spiritual vibrancy. So listen to me. So this applies very much to those of you who've grown up in a Christian home Those of you who've come through church, you're very familiar with spiritual things, you know spiritual topics, you know all sorts of spiritual things, and the caution for you is this, oh, don't trust in your spiritual heritage or in your background or the fact that you hang out with spiritual people. You must also believe and be careful that you not trust in all of the kindness things that God has done for you, not knowing that those things are the things that are meant to lead you to belief. 
In fact, that's what Romans 2 said. Romans 2.4 regarding Jews says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What does he mean, presume? It means that we assume that, that I have all of these, these privileges and all of these blessings because God is pleased with me. I must be doing right. I must be in fellowship with him because of all of the blessings. And Paul says, no, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? So the idea is that all of these things have been granted to you for the purpose of leading you to repentance. But in Israel's case, it led to unfaithfulness and unbelief. To combat the charge that God's word had failed, Paul takes the promises of God out of the national context and he sets them in individual application. He separates the promises to the nation from the application of those promises to individuals. So the rest of Romans 9 through 11 is therefore an explanation of this individual focus on redemption. The picture of Gentiles being grafted into the people of God. And then at the end, in chapter 11, 25 to 36, he addresses how all Israel will be saved. So at first reading of Romans 9, it was seemed to indicate that God is completely done with Israel. But that oversimplification, in my view, does not take into a full account what Paul says in Romans 11.12 and in Romans 11.26 that there will be a full inclusion of Israel and all Israel will be saved. And I'll explain what that means like eight weeks from now. (laughs) So the wording of this point is carefully chosen. A remnant for now. Why do I say that? I think what Paul is doing is talking about a remnant at the beginning of Romans 9, but he's looking forward to a fulfillment of the prophetic eschatological vision of Israel as something that is yet to come. Something the the disciples were anticipating when they said to Jesus, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you now restore the kingdom? In other words, God's word has not failed because of Israel's unbelief, because first, not all who descended from Israel are Israel, and secondly, according to Romans 11, 25 to 26, Partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So the solution to Israel's unbelief is that God is working in nondescript ways. The solution is that God isn't finished with his plan, and the solution is that there is divine sovereignty undergirding all of this. Lest you throw up your hands in frustration and go, God's word isn't true. The promises aren't being kept. What Paul does is bring us now not only to the problem and the solution, but now he goes even deeper to the matter of divine election, which is meant to be an incredible comfort. I don't know what kind of emotions the word election creates for you. And by that meaning that God chooses people in history to set his love upon It chooses people to set his salvation love upon. I've intentionally linked the word election with comfort because that's what the word is meant to be in this particular text. It's meant to provide comfort. There are many tensions, there are many disagreements, there are many unanswerable questions, but in this moment, God's choice of people is meant to bring comfort and love. In the same way, I've compared this before, when I asked my wife to marry me underneath the big bells in um, the Carillon Plaza in Dayton, Ohio, when I said, Sarah, will you marry me? She gratefully said yes. 
But what she didn't ask me about was, well, what about all the other girls who you didn't choose? Because in that moment, they didn't matter. All that mattered was her and me. The implications of my decision to ask her weren't even on her radar because the affection and the love that we had for one another, that was the central reality of the choice. And that is what's happening here in Romans chapter 9. Verse 9 begins the argument by appealing all the way back to the promise that God made to Abraham. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. The promise was that he would have a son and through him God would bless all of the world in Genesis 17. And the reason why Paul appeals to that particular promise is it's the beginning of God's promise to the people of Israel, but also to identify that this promise of God is invincible because of the sovereign plan of God, and specifically the sovereign plan of God in election. That God throughout history, has been relentless in the working out of his plan to save his people in general and to save his people in particular. He chose Abraham, and not because Abraham was worthy. He chose him out of all the people of the earth. What's more, he blessed Abraham with a son, despite the fact that they were both well beyond the age of childbirth. So the conception of the son was of grace, and the promise made to Abraham was of grace. And you need to know this idea of God's sovereignty or the idea of divine election is not a new subject that suddenly appears in Romans 9. It's all throughout the Bible. Romans 9 just happens to be the place where Paul makes his strongest case and argument for it. God made promises to Abraham that were not conditional on Abraham's works or his worthiness. God chose, God promised, God delivered. So don't miss this theme, that underneath the ground of election is the fact that God, God, God is the focus. The beauty of this section is that God is the one who keeps his word, because God is the one who makes his promises. And then verses 10 to 13, unpack this theme of election apart from works. Let's skip ahead to verse 12 and 13, then we'll work backwards. What Paul does here is cite the historical example of Jacob and Esau. After talking about Isaac, he then talks about Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons, twin sons. Verse 12 In reference to Rebecca, it says, She was told the older will serve the younger. So the idea is that while the children are in Rebecca's womb, God tells Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Or verse 13, which says, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Now the idea of hate there is not sinful hate, like we might think about it. It's the idea of preferring one over another or choosing one over another. Like Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, that unless a man hate father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. This reference to Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated is a quote from Malachi chapter 1 where God identifies that Jacob is to be the father of his Jewish of the Jewish people, where Esau it becomes a type of immoral people who are unable to embrace true repentance, as identified in Hebrews 12, 
14 to 16. So the idea is this, that before these two boys were even born, before they had any breath in their lungs, before they did anything right or anything wrong, God set his affection on one of them, Jacob. He chose him by divine election because of his grace. Now, if in your mind you hear me say that and you read this and you think, how is that fair? That's a great question and I'm not going to answer it today. You have to come back next week and I'll do my best. And the reason why I'm leaving it in tension is because that's not the point of this text. Fairness or unfairness is not the point. You need to see the point and set that a question, a very good one. Set it aside for a moment and look at verses 10 and 11. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, here it comes, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. That's the point of election in Romans chapter 9, right there in verse 11. What, what does that say? It says three things. It says, first, that God's sovereign choice is made apart from works, whether good or bad. That's what verse 11a says. Though they were not yet born and done, and had done nothing good or nothing bad. In other words, God's electing grace, His choice in the Bible is based upon His grace, not upon any condition within people upon whom he set there his love and his affection. So in that respects, his grace and his affection is without condition in terms of the people on whom he sets their love. It's not that they are better. It's not that they're more spiritual. It is simply because he is God. Secondly, the aim of election, what's the point of it, is the continuation of God's purposes. So if you think of the argument in this text going something like this, there's a problem with Israel, the solution is a remnant. And the way that you get that remnant is because of God's electing grace, meaning he chooses people within Israel to be that remnant. And then underneath that dynamic is another reality. And what is the reality underneath election? It is God's purposes, so his purposes will stand. In other words, it means that God is so glorious and so intent on the accomplishment of his plans that he leaves nothing to chance and is always working out things in accordance with his good and sovereign pleasure. That's the point. Finally, 11c the basis of God's sovereign choice is God and not our works. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. So the basis of God's sovereign choice is Himself, not our works. Now do you see how this idea of divine election offers hope? in the midst of the failure of Israel, or for that matter, in the midst of the failure of the human race? I mean, surely you know that Israel is not the only story in the Bible or in history of failure. The hope and comfort provided here is that the promises of God cannot be thwarted. The promises of God cannot be hindered, especially by human beings. And the reason is that the basis for God's grace and His mercy... It's God, that's why. The guarantee that His promises will come true is because of who God is. The guarantee that His promises will come to pass, even in failure, is the power of a sovereign, merciful, gracious-keeping, grace-giving, covenant-keeping God. The Word of God has not failed because there is something underneath 
even failure, which is the sovereignty of God. Every single person in this room has failed. And the moment that you heard the gospel and God showed you your failure, when you received Christ as your Savior, you need to know that all of those things were working because of God's sovereign plan to make much of His name and to redeem people. I hope you see the beauty of this. Regardless of the tensions, regardless of the questions that this truth raises, I want you just to think with me for a moment as to what this really means. I know there are hard implications of what this can mean, but just think at a minimum of what it means in Romans 9. It means this, that first, that God is working out a plan for redemption. He's working out a plan of salvation, and today is even a part of that plan, which means that there's no coincidence that you're here today and we're talking about this. There's no coincidence. This didn't, this didn't just happen. And it may be that you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and there's something that I'm saying is strangely interesting to you. Something, in fact, that there's this longing to know more about it. Or maybe you're right on the edge and looking just for that last little word so that you will actually come to put your faith in Jesus. And you need to know that that desire within your heart and the fact that you're in this building, around this text, at this moment, is all because of the sovereign pleasure of God who draws people to himself. And that in to know more is not you, it's God. He's in the process of conquering your soul, and it's a story of grace that he did with all of us when we came to faith in Christ. Secondly, this text shows us in a new way the utter bankruptcy of human works and family lineage. The problem with the Jewish people was that they trusted in who they were born into. So to trust in what you've done or to trust what you've been exposed to or what family you grew up or what information you know is spiritual suicide. So you listen to me very carefully. If you're a third-generation child, third-generation Christian child in this room, your grandparents came to faith in Christ, your parents came to faith in Christ, you now are come to faith in Christ. There is a danger, especially in that third generation, because you become so familiar with the legacy of Christianity and the history of spiritual truths that you can think because you can spout off Bible verses or because you come to church or you know spiritual information that you are genuinely converted. And the Bible says that spiritual lineage does not get you in the kingdom, only repentance and faith where you fall on your knees and say, Jesus, I'm broken and I need you to be my Savior and Lord. And that's how someone comes to faith. And it is a dangerous place sometimes to be so close to the truth that you could actually be far away from the truth. There's a beautiful legacy of having a Christian home. But there's also something you need to listen to because Israel had a wealth of spiritual information that they never fully appropriated. They assumed that because they had received the gifts that they were already in. It is only by the grace of God through Christ that we become children of God. You don't become a child of God by being born into the right family. Third, this passage means that God is working out His sovereign plan despite the failure of Israel and despite all of our failures. What Paul does here is he solves the problem of Israel's unbelief by anchoring it to every ounce of hope in God's sovereignty. What he does is he 
shows us that the sin in the Garden of Eden, what looked like the disaster of the death of Jesus, and even the failure of Israel is not the final word. That at the end of the day, God is still working out His plans and His purposes will stand. It means that God has a plan for your life even now. And while that plan at times is dark and you don't understand how it is working out, that God is still on His throne working out His sovereign purposes. And in so doing, there is comfort even while there is confusion. There's hope even while there is uncertainty. Because you may not know all of the events that are going to turn out in your life, but you can rest assured knowing that God is relentlessly pursuing His own plan for His glory. And there becomes the critical question, whether or not the center of the universe is what you want, or whether the center of the universe is what God wants. And what Romans 9-11 to will show us is that the center of the center of the center of everything in the universe is God's glory. And He's working everything out for that beautiful purpose. And our place in that plan is not the center. He's the center. Finally, this text should leave us stunned and in humble worship. You need to know that if you've received Christ as your Savior... God chose you. He set His love on you way before you ever thought of loving Him. The family you were born into, the circumstances of your life, even the hard ones, the moment you understood the gospel. Can you think of that moment? I can think of the moment when I heard it and I understood it. That moment when someone presented the gospel to you and the story of a man named Jesus who died on the cross could pay for your sins and suddenly it's not only that you believe that it was true, that it happened historically, but that, that was, it was for you and your heart was strangely drawn to believe in this truth. You set your heart on that. You need to know that in that moment you believe, but God was behind it all and that he had set his love on you way, way, way before you had any idea. None of that happened by accident. And He didn't choose you because you were smart, because you were humble, or because you were spiritual. He chose you. He conquered your heart. And when you ask yourself the question, why me? You know what the answer is? Because He's God. There's no answer to that question except that. And so you ought to leave today with this stunning realization that the only reason as to why you is because of the beauty of who you are, that because of the beauty of who and what God is, you then conclude with Paul, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Romans 11 at the end. At our Thanksgiving Eve service, we sang the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I'm sure many of you know the tune. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. There was a stanza in that hymn that I had never sung before, and it just stunned me as we sang it. And it's beautiful, and it really applies today. It says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace. 
Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home at thee with last. Till I'm home at thee at last. Undergirding the problem of Israel's unbelief, undergirding the beauty of your belief, is the sovereign purposes of a God who is the center of everything in the universe. A God who is gracious and kind and sovereign. Let's pray. Father, we... We bow at the end of a beautiful and glorious text like this, very much reminded that you are God and we are not. As we think back, for those of us who know you as Savior and Lord of the moment when we came to faith in Christ, nothing of those moments were ever by accident. And you are so unbelievably and mysteriously kind. And we thank you for your grace. Help us to be the kind of people who receive it and respond to it and do not take it for granted or presume upon it. And church, while we're in a moment of silence, I'm going to give you just some time for reflection at the end here. Prayer team's going to come during our time of silence. They'll be up here at the front. And if there's anything that you need to pray about or talk about, they'll be here and ready. But just as we conclude, I want to give you some time to think. What is God saying today to you? What are the tensions that you are wrestling with? What are the thoughts running through your soul? And we just take a moment to process those and talk to the Lord about them. And then when you hear the music begin, we can be dismissed.